0: You can solve a lot of problems with plant biotechnology. For example, you can make a crop less prone to be attacked by certain insects, so Mm. you get a better harvest. Um, You can make plants adapt to salty soil environments, so you can grow them in places where you otherwise couldn't grow anything.
1: Welcome to the Ahmed Lab podcast, where we discuss science and its applications in our life. Next is a conversation with Katerina Hoff. Dr. Hoff is a world-renowned scientist with over 50 peer-reviewed scientific publications that received more than 4,000 citations in the fields of gene annotation, biotechnology, and bioinformatics. Her PhD was about gene prediction in metagenomic sequencing reads and is now working as a junior group leader at the University of Kreisfeld as part of the Institute of Mathematics and Computer Science. She developed tools that scientists are using to find genes in living organisms. Also, she's a member of the Earth Biogenome Project Standards Committee on Genome Annotation, a project that is described as a moonshot for biology that aims to sequence, catalog, and characterize the genomes of all of Earth's eukaryotic biodiversity. Katarina is a genuine, friendly human being, a windsurfing instructor, and defines success as the ability to create something in science that someone else can use. This conversation is about finding genes, cells, and life. It's about science, diversity in academia, dealing with conspiracy theories and wrong information on social media and the internet. It's about motivation, failure, and success. I learned a lot in this episode, and I hope you will too. I am Ahmed Nazal, a medical doctor and neuroscientist in Heidelberg, Germany. This podcast is my own voluntary personal effort to bring science and its tools to the public at no cost. This episode is not supported by anyone. To support this podcast, please visit my Patreon page at patreon.com amdlab as shown in the description and the pinned comment. Sharing this episode, commenting on it, and giving it a like will help the content reach a wider audience and I thank you for that. This episode is in English, but I provide a transcription in Arabic and English by just clicking on the captions button on YouTube. Chapters and time segments are also available for you to use to jump to topics that are of interest to you. And now, without further ado, my conversation with Dr. Katharina Hoff. Welcome, Dr. Hoff. Katharina. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for agreeing to talk to me today.
0: I'm very happy to talk to you. Actually, I'm very excited about this podcast.
1: Yeah, same here. Um, it was honestly a surprise to find out like while reading your CV that you were or you did the same like the PhD part of the molecular biology program in Göttingen, which is like the twin sister of the neuroscience program that I also finished. That was was a pleasant surprise. So maybe you want to talk us through um, your career progress. Like um, how did you choose to become uh, like uh, in the field of Finding genes, biotechnology, bioinformatics, they're all like difficult terms. And maybe you could tell us more about those fields too.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, So when I was in school, I was interested in many things. Like in the last three years in Germany, you have to pick majors. And I had picked biology as one of them. The other ones were German and English, but really biology was the fascinating subject. Um, but maybe it's surprising uh, for you. I actually wanted to study arts after school. But to study arts, you have to pass entrance exams where they try to assess your talents in arts. <laughs> and I totally failed that. <laughs> so uh, after a long battle of not getting into art school, there was not much time. <laughs> and I applied for basically all all kind of biology related study programs. Um, and I ended up studying plant biotechnology at University of Hannover. Um, I did not want to study biology, like pure biology, because numerous people had told me I would just end up unemployed which I actually now believe would not have been true. (laughs) But um, back then that was the advice, like study something that has biology in it, but not biology. So plant biotechnology it was, Um, and actually it was great at University of Hannover. It was um, really a good faculty putting a lot of work into that plant biotechnology program back then. And it even allowed me to go abroad and like have this fully incorporated into my undergraduate degree. I went to Sweden, that was my longest stay abroad, for more than a year, and I started working on plant lipid research. It's something related to plant biotechnology. You know, I had in mind uh, making new biofuels uh, and saving the world, of course. Um, But uh, this was really nice there, but I knew that um, I did not want to Turned to Hannover after that, because Hannover did not have a lab that would do biofuel research uh, in the way that I wanted to do that eventually. Um, so w- during my time in Sweden, I had applied to many master's programs. Actually, one of them was in Heidelberg, uh, but my absolute favorite was the molecular biology program in Göttingen. Mostly because I knew that Ivo Feustner was running a group there um, and I thought I could fit in there with my interest in lipid research. Uh, so that was my reason I'm, why I really wanted to go there.
1: <laughs> I'm not aware of him, uh, him or her or... No, we'll get uh, into the him. Ivo oh, okay. Feusner
0: is a him, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, biochemistry professor. Mm. Yeah. Um, and for practical reasons, actually, I had done my bachelor thesis in biostatistics because I wanted to do it from abroad. Like I wanted to do my thesis at Hannover, but sitting in Sweden. Uh, so doing something with a computer made this realistic. Uh, that's why I started the going that way. And when I was in Göttingen, then the small bio program, it has lab rotations like the neuroscience program. That means you basically get to try different fields of research, uh, different groups, three of them for a couple of weeks each. Um, so I did one in Ivo Fäusner's group, which was great, actually. I did one in NMR uh, up the hill at the Max Planck uh, Institute for Biophysical Chemistry and Greisinger's Institute. Uh, and then I did one with Burkhard Morgenstern and Peter Meinicke in bioinformatics. Um, and actually, that was the turning point. Like I really liked the biochemistry stuff. I did. Uh, but when I was working with Peter Meinicke um, and Maike Tech and Burkhard Morgenstern, I was like, OK, maybe I want to do sequence analysis. Hmm. they got me (laughs) um so i decided to do my phd in that group and my thesis was on developing a novel method for finding genes in something called metagenomes now you have a lot of terms here that sound complicated so many
1: terms so many terms i guess we're gonna start with plant biotechnology (laughs) uh, because biotechnology by itself is uh some people have like um it, it sounds scary for some people like like people are changing the genes or so could what is biotechnology for you first? And then maybe you could,
0: yeah, so it is about changing the genes for me, actually. Oh, <laughs> so <okay. laughs> so uh, let's, let's maybe discuss what a gene is first. Maybe we should start there. Maybe. So um, not only the plants, but also the bacteria. Yeah, Let's think about bacteria. They're like small and simple. Um, they have something called a genome. And this genome basically encodes the building plan for a living being. that can be a bacterium it can also be a plant Um, complexity varies a lot actually Um, and these building plants these genomes uh, they consist of parts that actually have the instructions for what a cell should be doing and other parts that don't have these instructions they may have regulatory roles like how to do something when to do something Um, but uh, like they are not like the building blocks and um basically these building blocks they are called the genes and some of them, most of them actually encode for proteins. So they are like protein-coding genes. Now um protein you know probably from meat and egg. It has a lot of proteins, so all these proteins are made from genes in the genome. Um and plant biotechnology now is about improving plants for example agricultural or horticultural crop plants but it could also uh, be like other kind of plants like it's it's about improving them by changing that building plan um and you can do that in very invasive scary ways by literally going into the genome, cutting something out, putting something in, or you can also do it like um, in less dangerous sounding ways by putting pressure on a plant and plant breeding so that it will start doing things you want it to do. Um, And you can solve a lot of problems with plant biotechnology. For example, you can make a crop less prone to be attacked by certain insects. So Mm. you get a better harvest. Um, You can make plants adapt to salty soil environments. So you can grow them in places where you otherwise couldn't grow anything. Um, People are scared of it. Yes, uh, because uh, particularly in Germany, Greenpeace is always protesting Mm. the GMO plants um, because you can, of course, also do things that might be dangerous. For example, if you take... A plant that you use as an agricultural crop in Europe um, and you insert I don't know a herbicide resistance gene in there and this crop has wild relatives it's pretty likely that this herbicide resistance thing will like cross out of the crop Um, that's one of the things people are worried about Uh, another thing is that they are worried about the gene products being toxic Um, that's in most cases actually not the case like Plant biotechnologists try to actually not do that. Um, but yeah, I've heard them.
1: I, I like that because uh, here we're trying to debunk all the myths related to uh, biotechnology. Um, I guess like people are so, and th- that's where like the communication comes in that is important from the scientist part because um, people are afraid that the scientists don't know what they are doing. That's the thing, and it's it's it might be true to a certain degree that uh, uh, we're we're entering a field that we still like learning about. But maybe you could tell me more about it because you're the master here about it. And um, and then, um, how much can we expect to like if you, if you change like a plan to be more resistant to something, for example, that sh- and it it ends up like successful, um, is there like a guarantee that this won't change other uh, mechanisms in the plant, like do we put like um, control? Is, are there like like do scientists have like control uh, pathways that stops things from going wrong, for example?
0: Well, not always. <laughs> the bad news is sometimes we don't know what we do. Apparently, <laughs> um, I, I must say I don't actively practice plant biotechnology. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I got out of this field uh, with my bachelor's degree. But (laughs) usually it takes a lot of prior knowledge to achieve something you want to achieve. Um, Mm. One example that probably many people know uh, are the... um, in Germany, we call them the anti-match tomato, like the the tomato that will not go foul as quickly as other tomatoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was basically achieved by inserting a certain gene. Um, you need the knowledge of which gene you want to play with. If you don't have that knowledge, it's pretty difficult. You you can achieve things without knowing genes, like classical mm. plant breeding since, I don't know, before Christ uh, has achieved things without knowing about genes. Uh, but if you want to do it in a targeted way, you have to know a lot. And um I would say today you do have ways to check on whether something went terribly wrong in your manipulation mm. because in in principle, we can sequence genomes now so we can actually double check what happened. I'm not really sure that's always done though. Mm. I don't Interesting.
1: know yeah but that's where your work comes in like finding the genes, right like yes. that's where where now afterwards like you moved into bioinformatics, but you said something about so, metagenes so we have the genes those are like um the map kind of for building things in the cell
0: Ah, uh, like, what i said was metagenome exactly and then there okay. is
1: like the epigenome and then you mentioned something uh the we're like metagenome. really
0: like a lot of terms so um mm-hmm. a metagenome is uh, basically a collective genome of a microbial community so you can go, I don't know, into a field, take a soil sample. The soil sample will be inhabited by a lot of bacteria and archaea, probably some fungi. Maybe you have a bit of plant material in there. And you can basically isolate all the genomic material at once, make a big mix and mess of everything and sequence that. So that's a metagenome. Um, and I, I did my PhD on finding protein coding genes in the prokaryotic fraction of such metagenomic reads. Um, Now you said, we have an epigenome, that Mm. is completely different story. (laughs) Um, Basically, in the genome, I said before, we have the genes, and then we have the parts that are I call them intergenic region. Yeah, they are like the parts between the protein coding genes. And then that's not all Um, the genome, you can maybe imagine it, um, like, like a string, You have a long string and then it doesn't sit in a eukaryotic, like a human cell in this string-like shape. It's actually, it's packed, it's neatly packed, it's spiraled, it's wrapped around proteins. And uh, in addition, there are some parts of that genome that's neatly packed and wrapped up that are methylated. And when we talk about the epigenome, we mean which parts of the genome have this methylation tech, basically. Um, and this methylation tech uh, controls on how accessible the genome is. Um, so that's the epigenome. You, you can sequence an epigenome, which means you identify the nucleotides in the genome that have these modifications.
1: Very interesting, very interesting. So um, I was reading like the papers, at, at least one paper. I tried to read one p- of your papers uh, last week and I, I really felt that you were going on a hunt, but on a microscopic level or like trying to kind of automate finding genes but um how did we like humans start look for genes
0: Yeah, that is a very interesting question, and uh, I actually had to check on that myself. (laughs) Um, So basically, we have to go back to the time when people started sequencing uh, nucleic acid material. So the genome is made from nucleic acids. It's called DNA. Um, And even before that, people had been sequencing rna so now how does that play together um we have that genome that dna just imagine that ribbon line again and before this is somehow put into proteins that information um there's something called transcription so the small parts of the genome that encode for a protein they are transcribed into RNA, different type of nucleotides, a bit less stable on the long term. Uh, and then this is translated into the protein sequence. Um, and the first thing that was sequenced actually was RNA. Um, but then they started sequencing DNA. Um, and this was like in 19. 72, I think 1972 was the first sequenced gene, which was a bacteriophage uh, code protein gene. Um, And then it's like, Took a little while, but uh, people got faster and faster and more efficient in like sequencing and analyzing genomes. So uh in nineteen ninety-five we had the first complete bacterial genome, mm. which was the HEMA influenza um G- genome. It's a bacterium. Um and in between that time from nineteen seventy-two to nineteen ninety-five, all the time uh people were like observing. So, how does this work? How does this transcription step work? How does this Translation work and mm-hmm. they discovered there's the codon usage. So, three letters on the RNA are basically always translated into one amino acid, which is a building block of a protein. And the first methods um, for finding genes or identifying protein coding genes, they purely relied on these observations about the um, genetic code, basically. Um, the earliest publication that I'm aware of about predicting genes is from 1982 from James Fickett from the Los Alamos National Laboratory, um, and his method was basically a decision uh, classifier that would say, okay, um, this nucleotide is uh, protein coding, or it's not protein coding, I don't know, um, and it was such a simple algorithm that you could perform it without a computer if you wanted to. Hmm. He basically uh, used the knowledge that they had back then about codon frequencies, um, and I think one major advance that uh, happened down the line uh, was made, at, at least to what I'm aware of, uh, by a scientist called Mark Borodovsky um, from Georgia Tech. Hmm. And uh, Mark Borodovsky uh, had the idea of using something called Markov chains. Um, You can use Markov chains to um, basically predict the state of something. You can have a succession of days and you maybe want to label the weather is sunny and the weather is cloudy, the weather is cloudy, the weather is sunny and so on. Uh, And you can like try to predict the succession of weather with Markov chains, hidden Markov models. Um, and you can do the same on a genome sequence. And and this is what he implemented. And uh, he had a paper in the early 1990s, like 1992, I think, um, with uh, James McInnage together. And that tool was called GenMark by then. Mm. Um, and this is, to my knowledge, like the uh, most fundamental paper that we are building on today. Uh, because until today, we're using at least something similar to hidden markov models for predicting genes so it's all about statistical models and okay. i think they started doing it because there was this need from biologists to analyze the nucleotide data
1: okay so um like going back to like our first intuition that um there is something that carries like a- as humans like first intuition that there's something in our st- in cells or or in organisms probably like um that carries the information. I, I think this is like a very interesting turning point point uh, in, in the way we think uh about everything around us like about living uh, organisms um I'm not I'm not aware of the point where like or or when did we recognize as humans that there is something in us or in the living organisms that, gets like that determines who we are okay this guy this will end up like a plant or this will be a mouse and then that this material like goes down in in lineage or uh for the species and is preserved somehow so this like, like this insight i'm not aware, i'm not sure that i know <laughs> when did this uh, happen like this kind of eureka that point in
0: a... maybe it's it, it happened in 1866, basically. 1866. Okay. <laughs> yes. So hmm. there was a monk uh, called Gregor Mendel, and he. Performed plant breeding experiments uh, with peas, like the green little vegetable that you can eat, um, and he basically um, had like inbred lines of, for example, um, round shaped peas and wrinkly peas. Um, I think he also played with yellow and green peas, uh, and he he was just like testing what happens if I cross them, uh, and he described, at least to my knowledge, for the first time that there must be an inheritable trait. Um, Mm -hmm. so but this was buried this knowledge like he wrote it up it was out there but nobody remembered for a long time until the end of the 1800s
1: (laughs) that's interesting because Mendel is a monk and it all started by a monk like the biological (laughs) okay (laughs) very interesting okay and then uh, we we recognize that there's building like some information at least uh, can be coded and then we figured that out and then came uh like Watson and Craig in 1960s yeah
0: it? It, it was all in the 60s it was a a little bit earlier like I think a lot happened in the beginning of the 1900s as well uh where like the concept that there must be something that carries the information was becoming more clear and mm. clear um so but, Francis uh, and
1: uh, yeah. uh, Crick and Watson like took the credit for uh, like discoveries made by a, a, a female scientist right
0: yeah I think so too. <laughs> 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 yeah, interesting,
1: interesting. Yeah. See so you see like how like science um bits and pieces from everywhere, everyone is contributing to like what we where, where where we're at right now. So you mentioned like and then um you could at the beginnings you could do it manually, like predict what gene is coding or like define the genes. So I'm I'm not pretty like like it's not clear for me. Why do we need to um, find the genes?
0: Okay, so the the thing is that the proteins have so many important and interesting roles, and biologists usually want to know how living things work. Yeah? I mean, obviously, we're not robots, but there is some building plan that controls how things go. Like, why do we fall sick? Um, why does our food grow in this way or in that way? Um, and proteins are not the only important component, but they are such an obvious important component that biologists strive to know as much as possible about them. And in order to investigate a particular protein, you first must know about its existence, um, And today you can sequence proteins. That's a whole different story. Um, But most of the knowledge we have about proteins is from genome analysis, because sequencing genomes, complete genomes is so much cheaper and easier than sequencing complete proteomes, obviously. Um, So we want to know where the genes are, because we want to know which proteins are there. Um, And that's why humans are trying to find genes to do basically further downstream biological research. So we're sitting pretty much upstream. And you were like earlier asking, um, why is it difficult, right? (laughs) Um, It's actually super complicated what our cells can do. That's why it's difficult. Um, A human cell works completely completely differently um, compared to an algae cell or compared to a bacterial cell and even to bacteria Let's think about E. coli. Some some people have heard about E. coli. Uh, And then maybe let's think about something else that they might have heard about. Pseudomonas is also a more commonly known bacterial genus. Um, Even uh, these cells work differently. They use different signals for this transcription from the DNA to RNA and for the translation from the RNA to the protein level. Um, and they also use different signals for controlling when is a gene actually transcribed. They use slightly different signals for controlling when translation is, for example, inhibited, because this can also happen. Um, and this uh, makes it pretty complicated to replicate what the cell can do. And what we do in gene prediction is basically try to use some statistical mathematical model or modern machine learning techniques in order to replicate what cells have been able to do all along.
1: I mean that sounds very complicated because I, I, up to my knowledge, is um, protein prediction is called the grand challenge in biology because of its complexity. Like, uh, so, I guess like proteins are three dimensional structures and um, they're so they're made of like you said basic building blocks called amino acids and then once you put like different amino acids together and uh, how many amino acids i guess we have 21 um, essential um, it depends
0: a little bit um so there are 64 codons because they are triplets uh four of them are stop codons they don't encode for an amino acid and um it's it's not a fixed number we have actually different variants of the genetic code (laughs) see (laughs) (laughs) so that's the
1: complexity and then they form in different 3D structures and uh, so it's a pretty complicated thing to kind of predict the way the protein would look like, but it seems yeah. like easier to look for the gene that is responsible for producing the um, like that protein. So you wrote like um, like in, a, in your paper, um, a uh, Br- Bracker? Bracker or it's called breaker? Breaker. breaker. Breaker like breaker. breaking something. <laughs> yeah, right. Breaker one unsupervised RNA sequential based genome annotation with Gene Mark E.T. and Augustus. Yes.
0: Yeah. And- should I maybe explain what that title is even saying?
1: I think so. Let's <laughs> okay. so. start from there. And, uh...
0: let's, let's take it apart. So uh, the breaker one is the tool name. Yeah, this mm. is just like some name we came up with. That that has a history on its own. <laughs> um, I'm still contemplating on whether I want to discuss that. Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, what the tool is doing is um, using... RNA-seq data. RNA-seq data is sequenced RNAs from the cell. So I mentioned before that people sequence genomes, and very, very early on, they were even sequencing RNA. Um, And through the development of novel sequencing methods, nowadays, it's feasible to sequence a complete state of transcription of a cell at certain time points under certain conditions. And that is what we call RNA-seq. So basically RNA-seq data is um, evidence of transcription of genes. Um, And you can use this evidence of transcription of genes, uh, and map it back to the genome, like you can project you say, this RNA read, like this piece of information in the genome belongs to certain location. And now we have skipped over one important detail. Um, While in bacteria, genes basically consist of what we call open reading frames. That means in bacteria, there is a start codon and then comes a neat succession of triplets codons until there is a stop codon. Um, In eukaryotes, like in humans or in yeast, this is a whole lot more complicated um, because in eukaryotic genomes, we have interruptions in the gene. So there is a... Start codon. Sometimes it's not even complete. Sometimes the interruption is in the start codon. But let's say there is a start codon. There are some codons. They may not even be complete. And then there is a break point. And then there is some region that is not translated into a protein. And then continues the neat chain of triplets. And there might be another like interruption. These interruptions, they are called introns. And when you try to project these transcriptome, these RNA-seq reads back to the genome, if you are lucky, they are spanning such an intron. So they provide information about these interruptions that are pretty complicated to reliably predict. Um, So RNA-seq data has a huge value for finding genes because it gives us the intron positions, basically. Um, And... Then there were two other tool names in the title. One of them was GeneMark ET. Um, GeneMark ET is a tool developed at the group at Georgia Tech led by Mark Bordowski. That's the same guy I mentioned before, who basically, yeah, he left a huge impact in the field, even already in 1992 and earlier. Um, Actually, I really love that we're collaboration partners. Um, But uh, what GeneMark ET is doing in the core, like many other gene prediction tools, it uses some kind of hidden Markov model um, in order to predict genes, and what all the other tools can't do, um, it can actually self-train the parameters of the statistical model if you give it a genome sequence and transcriptome data. Now, I said before, the whole gene finding problem is super complicated because every species basically has its own way of doing transcription and translation. I, overall, they are similar, but they, they have those differences. Um, and what GeneMark ET can do is basically adapt parameters to these differences fully automatically. Now, Augustus is yet another tool for gene prediction um augustus was initially developed by mario stanke who is bioinformatics professor in uh, greifswald he's actually my boss (laughs) and uh, by stefan wag uh, in university of gottingen uh so mario is also from gottingen but from the math program um and uh augustus is also a hidden markov model based gene finder and all these different hidden markov model designs they are like slightly differently. They are not identical to each other just because they sound so similar. Um, And Augustus turned out to be very accurate compared to most other gene finding tools. But Augustus cannot do the self-training. So it's something we call a supervised method. So what Augustus needs is from, if you want to work with fly, it needs genes from the fly to adapt parameters in order to find genes in the fly genome. Um, Sometimes that is a feasible scenario. For example, when he started working on fly genes, there were fly genes known. So that was not a problem. Um, But today we're talking about sequencing thousands of genomes. uh, And then it is completely unfeasible to have someone manually annotate hundreds of genes in order to train a gene finder. Um, so the whole idea um, of breaker one was basically to combine the self training gene mark ET with the transcriptome data during training with the gene prediction tool Augustus, which can also use RNA data, but in the prediction step um, and have accurate gene predictions in a fully automated way. So this is a pipeline that biologists can basically start on their transcriptome and genome data. And get a genome annotation.
1: That must be very important, right? Um, but l- l- let me just go back into the steps. So you, we we are talking about right now about uh, complicated statistical tools that v- verge at like the level of machine learning. Probably this is machine learning at the end of the day. So um, that is your like daily work, but for other people probably like me, like, um, I have some idea, but not in, in depth as you are. Um, so, so you, 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 start with a, a gene. Uh, so like trying to understand what you said, like, make a <laughs> make, make a sense of it. So, uh, you, you usually you need like data sets, right? Like that's when you mentioned supervised learning and then there must be unsupervised learning. And, um, So supervised learning is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's like a way, so you have to tell like the function or the algorithm what the output is before, and there's like to train it on a human, and there's where like the word annotation comes in. So a human sits and says like, okay, this gene is that, this gene is that, or...
0: Ah, okay. Um, So Um, mm, what we don't do in our group, but that is an important field as well. We don't say what genes do. Um, We only say where they are. That's what our tools do. Um, Like saying what they do is something called functional genome annotation, where you say this gene is I don't know, ribosomal rRNA is not a protein-coding gene. Or this gene is a peroxidase. Uh, yeah, that's functional annotation, super important, but not what's happening uh, in mm. Breaker or any of our methods. So for um, you,
1: like the data set labeling would be this gene is here, that's Yeah, it's like there. this
0: nucleotide is coding and this one is not. That's basically mm. um in the simplest way our labeling. It's a bit more complicated. So it's we like do not, a
1: zero-one yeah. kind of.
0: Kind annotation. of. <laughs> kind of, yes.
1: <laughs> or do you have multi class um, labeling? Um,
0: well, we basically have labeling of um, start codons, like this nucleotide belongs to a start codon. Mm. Um, this belongs to a protein coding segment. This belongs to an intergenic region, belongs to an intron. This is a stop codon. So, this is the kind of labeling that we have uh, as input for supervised training.
1: Mm, and this is um probably so breaker one does not need that
0: yes breaker one can basically even like that's not in the paper that you read but uh, it can even run without the RNA seq data in theory or also in practice but I don't advise to do so it can work with the genome sequence only because gene mark okay. um es it's called es but it's in the same tool basically uh can work on a genome sequence only but uh it works much better if you have some kind of supporting evidence like RNA-seq data
1: and who would use that who would benefit from breaker one like
0: um hmm. basically all those little groups and individuals who are now sequencing genomes Hmm. Um, so they're There's a bit of a difference. Um, There are some huge institutions who annotate protein coding genes. Um, One name you have probably heard is the National Institute of Health uh, of the United States of America, the NIH. Um, They have like, let's call it annotation department (laughs) or even maybe several groups. (laughs) Um, And also the European Institute for um, Biotechnology, the EBI um they also uh, have their annotation groups um then there is something called ensemble uh they also do genome annotation um they in part also benefit from this i know that ensemble people are now running our breaker pipelines not so much breaker one more like breaker two but mostly it's the individuals who sit there with their novel genome data and want to find the genes so breaker can or should be um accessible to a large number of people. Apparently, it's still difficult for people to run, they keep telling me, (laughs) but it should be easy.
1: (laughs) Is it like written in a specific language?
0: Um, Yes and no. (laughs) Um, Mm. Originally, it was written in a language called Perl. Um, So Perl, uh, to my knowledge, comes from the language processing, like natural language processing, programming languages. Um, It can be used to also analyze like German language, if you wanted to, Mm. or English language. Um, And languages and DNA have a lot in common. There are a lot of similar methodologies that you need. Like, for example, you need pattern recognition. Um, And this is something that Perl is strong in. However, the choice that we use Perl um, was rather historical (laughs) because Mm -hmm. we had a Perl code base already. Um, Now, Breaker also has some Python components uh, because we have pretty much completely switched to using Python uh, in recent years. Um, Python is not as specific to language processing, I would say, but it also brings everything you need. Python is much more universal. It's also the language for modern machine learning. Uh, you can do statistics with it. Um, and the like under the hood, like the tools that are runtime consuming, are uh, they are written in C++. Okay. That's like Augustus is a C++ tool, for example.
1: I see. Um, um, yeah, so they are like toolboxes that you can use, like libraries that now, so you, you migrated to Python and, and, um, so like once you, you wrote breaker one in 2016, and that was like when deep learning started to become kind of efficient and popular, like in 2015, deep learning started to be a thing more than previous um like support vector machines or uh, uh or other statistical tools that are not as deep as deep learning mm-hmm. so um is, is it something that you are guys are using now like implementing
0: Yes and no. Um, Yes and no. Um, So, uh, Breaker, the the paper came out in 2016. It was a very lengthy review process, I must Mm. say. Um, Not the longest we have seen. Now our new record is a year and a bit more, but um, uh, that back then was already long. Um, The idea for Breaker was born at the Plant and Animal Genome Conference in San Diego. Uh, and I believe it was in 2013 already. Um, and, um, it had been around as a pipeline for a little bit, uh, when the paper appeared, um, so, uh, yes, that's isn't parallel to the, um, rising of deep learning, um, and people in our group, uh, use deep learning. For example, one of our PhD students, Felix Becker, that is, um, is using uh, convolutional neural networks um, in order to basically replace sequence alignment. So sequence alignment is basically when you have one or more sequences that you try to arrange in such a way that the matching letters are in the same columns. Um, and and he is uh, using deep learning uh, for that (laughs) Um, also uh, we are using uh, machine learning uh, for predicting whether um, a nucleotide is protein coding or not Uh, there was a paper this year I'm not Mm. on that, that's the work of uh, Mario Stanke and Darwin Merch actually uh, called Clamsa, Um, so yes machine learning has um, its impact, its influence um, but but we are like not moving to towards using machine learning only, like the modern machine learning, the deep learning only for genome annotation. Um, there have been efforts. There are some manuscripts that you can find online, uh, but they have not uh, been like the big breakthrough mm. yet. You never so know what's going to come. There
1: were, I mean, that's that's pretty. Yeah, that's that's a very way, a very good way of putting it because sometimes you, if it's like adding deep learning probably without adding the accuracy or improving the output, you're just complicating things. And if you can do it with, I don't know, like a simpler, or and I wouldn't call it simpler, but like, uh, like less um, probably computationally um, costly efforts or methods, probably that's even better, I guess.
0: Yeah, actually, that brings me to a different thing, to explainable AI. Uh, so one of the problems that, as you just said, sometimes it's it's like um, machine learning with neural networks basically produces a black box. Um, you can train basically a predictor to do something, maybe predict a gene. Yeah, you can do that. In my PhD thesis, we used a neural network in order to predict a coding gene in the bacterial sequence chunks. Um, but then you don't know why exactly is this black box predicting this gene here and uh, there is this new emerging field called explainable ai uh, where you can try to figure out why did it predict it this way i i know that mario has uh, for teaching purposes uh, made some interesting experiments with that Um, but As I said, it's not something that has arrived uh, at replacing hidden Markov model-like models in genome annotation yet.
1: Okay, excellent, excellent. Um, So you are also a genome annotator, part of the committee for genome annotation in um, the Earth Biogenome Project.
0: That sounds
1: like a very ambitious project.
0: Actually, it is Um, the Earth Biogenome Project is basically an initiative to sequence all eukaryotic life within the next decade. Um, Disclaimer, it started a little while ago and with all optimism that I have in my heart, I'm not sure um, it will happen within this decade. But um, yeah, something down that timeline. Yes. So it's basically a worldwide initiative uh, that's embracing um, sequencing efforts on on different continents and different uh, countries. Um, And I'm I'm not an annotator in there. Um, I'm in an advisory committee. So the Earth Biogenome Project is trying to give advice to all these people who are doing all that practical work of sequencing, assembling and annotating genomes on how to do it. for example, there are also uh, committees on uh, sample collection and processing or um, on data analysis more generally than the annotation. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm on that uh, subcommittee where we try to basically come up with guidelines of what should be done at a minimum so that we say the genome has been annotated um, and uh, what could be done in addition, what do we recommend? Um, so For all it's...
1: life forms on Earth.
0: Yeah, basically. Well, eukaryotic. 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 (laughs) Uh, We haven't explained to anyone what's a eukaryote, right? We have not, right? Oh, God. So uh, bacteria basically have their genome swimming around in that single cell that they are. Um, And in eukaryotes, there's something called a nucleus. So there's like a double membrane layer wrapped around the genome inside the cell. Um, So when I say all eukaryotes, I mean all the living beings that have a nucleus.
1: Mm. So what living beings don't have a nucleus?
0: Well, bacteria, archaea, and then there's this gray zone, whether viruses are uh, living beings or not. I tend mm. to say not.
1: <laughs> well, they cause a lot of problem, like in the, in the pandemic, the viruses. <laughs> Indeed. So we, we need to take them uh, serious. Okay. Um, yeah, that's interesting so like all eukaryotic cells it's like um like the mitochondria in our cells used to be a bacteria or or, or...
0: oh yeah that's the so-called endosymbiont hypothesis so um the the imagination that we have today of how um eukaryotes acquired something called organelles um, is basically yeah that some larger prokaryotic cell somehow engulfed uh, some smaller bacterium and uh, that smaller bacterium just lived on happily ever after (laughs) in that cell (laughs) and that's how we think we got um, mitochondria they actually even have their small own genome it's like a a tiny bacterial genome inside of uh, eukaryotic cells and also the plastic it's uh, like the chloroplasts for example um, similar hypothesis that small uh, photosynthetic bacteria were basically taken up uh, by larger cells and mm. yeah live on happily ever after
1: exactly like it it, it came to me because you said like the differences between the dna because the dna in the mitochondria is uh, it, they have like little dna right yes. and it's a bit different than the dna in the bigger cell that the mitochondria is in it. And yes, like...
0: it's it's like a mini uh, bacterial genome, basically. Same with the chloroplasts. Um, it has lost uh, a lot of um, functions. Uh, so um, both mitochondria and chloroplasts will not live happily ever after if you take them out of their host cell, because mm. they're totally dependent now because they lost parts of their genome. Uh, but they still have uh, the most important things that are not encoded by the host.
1: That's crazy if you think about it like the level of complexity that we have to understand we're trying to understand it's like amazing and and thank you so much for clarifying it i mean Mm -hmm. pretty pretty astonishing stuff so let's kind of move a little bit away from those topics and so i found you on twitter and uh it says that that you are genome annotation geek (laughs)
0: yeah actually that is funny because i'm not a twitter person i mean i am on twitter yes but uh, i i don't use twitter much um Mm. until very recently i had maybe 10 or 20 followers i think (laughs) because i only made a few tweets um okay i I think only last week i i landed my first viral tweet (laughs) oh very good very good and now twitter might go down um yeah so um i thought about using twitter more for science uh because i have many colleagues who do that like i, I asked them like why do you do it and they're like well we saw see all the papers we should read and i'm like yeah but i see them on ResearchGate. yeah but twitter is good sometimes too so that's how i thought okay maybe i do have to use twitter more as well um but that's funny i actually thought you had found me through the MOL bio program
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah no actually like through linkedin and then twitter and um So that brings me like like do you think that it's important for scientists to have a social media presence like these days?
0: Yes. Um and I have like a bad conscience that I have ignored that myself for a pretty Mm -hmm. long time. So um what I have always had and valued was a website that says like who I am, like what I do, what I'm interested in, because I usually check out scientists I'm collaborating with as well on their websites. If they don't have a website, that's a pretty disturbing thing. It does happen because not every institute gives a website to every PhD student and postdoc. Uh, We were very lucky in Göttingen that we always had that privilege. Um, But yeah, social media helps like um, to go beyond this like kind of online stalking of other scientists. Um, you basically get a chance to, yeah, basically listen along what people are doing. And that's a very valuable thing.
1: I agree. I agree. I I learn a lot from like the accounts of um, researchers or scientists on social media, LinkedIn. I'm more active on LinkedIn. I'm trying to crack Twitter, but I, I don't know how to, I don't know, like it's not working for me. And um, but I see that some like posts like um, snippets of the research there and they tell the people in easy ways, like understandable way to communicate their science kind of. Yeah. Um,
0: Also like programming guidelines. I was actually showing my students in the classroom. I actually put Twitter on on the projector this week. And I was like, look, if you have problems with Git, maybe you want to check this thread on Twitter because it gives really good advice on tackling your specific problem. Um, But It's also like using Twitter takes so much time. Like you, you're like scrolling endlessly if you're following more than one person on through what's happening and what other people mm-hmm. have liked and so on. It uh, maybe takes a bit too much um, of resources to do that. Maybe uh, for we a could time. like
1: tweet for Elon Musk now that uh, we need we need a way to optimize finding the information that we're looking for in, on Twitter.
0: Well, a say. lot of people have moved away from Twitter already to oh. something called Mastodon.
1: Oh, really? i never heard of it.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. It sounds like, a I don't know, gut's disease, but it's actually a software tool. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Similar to Twitter, uh, but totally decentralized. So uh, Mastodon basically operates mm. via decentralized servers that are funded by different communities. Uh, That's cool. And, okay. So far, Mastodon is so easy and quiet for me because not everyone has moved yet. Mm. Like a lot of the people who I, whom I appreciate are there. Like, for example, I really like to read about the things happening in the group of Rob Waterhouse. He's also involved in the Earth Biogenome Project. He's on Mastodon. So now I That's see good. all his tweets uh, or or Mastodons, whatever you call them, very mm. prominently because he's one of the few people who say something. Um, uh, but, yeah, I don't think there's a point in talking to Elon Musk at, <laughs> like, at the moment, no. I see, I see. <laughs>
1: I see. He's busy, like, uh, firing people and, yeah, and exactly. hopefully hiring others. Um but yeah that's that's interesting but the problem with social media and um is like fake news get more attention and people consume it faster, and like it spreads like false information. That's like a huge problem it spreads faster than true uh well evidence based facts and I wonder like why does it have to do with the way scientists communicate with the public or or is it just like the nature of of us human beings like wanting like conspiracy theories they are easy to understand and um yeah. and it gives like a simple solution for a huge problem and then you're like just you don't need to put so much energy trying to understand what's going on like in comparison to a scientist who would dig deep and I don't know like it's it's really a big problem in social media, like any every platform has this problem right now,
0: yes, actually, I had the most shocking um Yeah, encounter. Like for me, it was really shaking me in my core. Um, I was sitting in the uh, practice of my physiotherapist. Um, So I sometimes have back problems. So I see someone who practices osteopathy. And I was sitting in the waiting room and then eventually he called me in and he was very upset. And I was like, okay. And then he started telling me why he was upset. It was because of another patient who believes that we are all controlled by reptoids like like seriously believes that like I, I never thought it's actually possible that a person believes there are reptoids among us who look like humans and who control humans and have been doing that for the past I don't know how many thousand years and then I started thinking like how how is it possible that someone believes that um and yeah you're probably right people look for simple explanations but Reptoids are not a simple explanation.
1: <laughs> Probably like, you know, like that's, that's the bits and pieces from here and there that you hear. And then you kind of like um, the brain tries to make a story that is easy for you to understand. So maybe he heard that some scientist says, oh, we have the reptilian part in the brain. That's Or he said, OK, and then he heard someone else that's talking about aliens and reptiles that are intelligent and then made the made the link and it made sense for him that's the thing like um, you don't know what makes sense for people and and is it correct to kind of um, control the information or really have like control over the conversations that people are having or just um... I
0: think it's important to like stop crap like really incorrect totally wrong information. Um I think it's an invasion of privacy if someone went into like a private one-on-one conversation I have with a friend like Imagine I believe in reptoids and I tell my friend, oh, I think today I saw Angela Merkel, I think she's a reptoid. Yeah, that would be wrong if WhatsApp would intercept like, no, you cannot tell your friend you think Angela Merkel is a reptoid, which I don't. Yeah. Um, but um, if it's like semi publicly in a larger bubble, I think we we absolutely need to to get this under control. Um, I mean, one thing. Like, that's why I was so excited to talk to you is uh, that we need better science communication with the public. Um, Honestly, I do have some doubts that the people who believe that Earth is a flat disk, despite every knowledge we have today, are going to listen to a science podcast. (laughs) Um, Mm. I was thinking that a larger effort needs to be put into schools um, to, to make it very clear to kids of every age until they get out of the school system that, you know, these things, they are like not true and other things are true. <laughs> um, but then on the other hand, it's it's a problem. We have religion around, right? Religion is uh, pretty much for me similar to the reptoid theory, um, just that it has been around for a much longer time. Um, and then there are teachers who uh, teach creation um, theory, like uh, they teach kids that there is uh, basically a sim- like an equally justified model of how humans became to exist, and that is that God just created you on day so-and-so. Um, and as long as we don't have that under control, I don't see a chance of getting the other things under control.
1: Complicated topic. And uh, the thing is about um, people who are into those um they're kind of, they defend those things fiercely because there's an issue with, uh, I guess, um, the mechanism to um, filter information and the understanding of reality and then brings you to what reality is and um, like the common reality and the individual reality and um, what we agree on to be correct reality truth facts um it's, it's a difficult topic and um i agree with you like um so, there should be some kind of form of control but not controlling what the people say but like maybe um controlling what gets disseminated because we know that social media companies are able to control which content gets more likes or gets more um, um, shares, and they could mo- like, monitor the quality, Who who is producing that um, information, and in specific topics, kind of like make sure that authorities are, or like trained individuals, not authorities, <laughs> trained individuals that know what they're talking about. In the specific field, they are kind of the ones who, the algorithm would suggest to people to watch um because it otherwise um because the algorithm goes other, uh, the other way around for someone it just feeds the people what they want and they are if they have already skewed version of the reality then the algorithm will just go with the flow and there are so many much so much content that probably more entertaining than just like a scientist or a science podcast and uh, people would consume that more um, and then the algorithm would keep on or oh, think yeah maybe that is some good content and then we'll promote it and just like keep on um, showing it to other people I think it's a big topic
0: mm, um, I think one thing that could be made more clear even to kids in school is that we are not on on a frozen solid knowledge level like all these conspiracy theories they have some some ground truth they they like to cite some paper from some someone at some point in time and say but he said the masks decrease the oxygen level in the blood it's a scientific publication something like that um it's it's important that everyone understands yeah he, he might have said that he might have had scientific evidence but it's a flow like mm-hmm. after this came another i don't know 100 papers who said something else and they found a flaw in the methodology and even those 200 papers might be wrong like next week we might have someone else who finds out something else like this is difficult for a lot of people to understand that science is not a frozen state <laughs>
1: it is difficult and uh, and like alzheimer for example I don't know if you heard about this but um there's a like a mainstream theory about alzheimer that it is caused by a certain accumulation of uh, protein in the brain and um and it was found that uh, figures and all the data in the most like important paper were uh, fabricated and that led to like Twenty years of research and people like wasting their life, their taxpayers' money and down the drain basically and uh, our understanding of the whole disease and is still did not improve. Um, so that's the thing like se- ethical like ethics in science and um, is very important and building trust between the public. And the scientist is also important, and the only way I guess is for the scientists to go, just like what you're doing, um, and tell people what they are doing and what they are working on, and uh, have a conversation, basically, even what, no, no matter what the conversation is. But like, be out there, tell people, okay, this is wrong, and uh, or this or yeah, that that, and we did this because of that reason, or we changed our opinion because of that. Um, Just like uh, Karl Lauterbach changed his opinion about uh, cannabis legalization, (laughs) for example. So, yeah. Well, such a a difficult topic to discuss. Thank you for going there. Um, And uh, so, like in science also, um, I wanted to ask you, how was it for you, like, how was your experience as a female in uh, or a, a woman in the scientific field in a technical field uh, do you face any um like obstacles that you think a colleague like a male colleague did not face or
0: um so i have been very very lucky that is one hmm. thing like i um have always worked in groups that um had like a pretty good gender balance, I would say. Um, Like I I have never worked in a team that would consist of men and me. (laughs) For a very short time, my current group uh, was dominated by men, but also that uh, has changed again. It depends on when you hire people. But um, so I have never uh, felt like I don't know, someone is giving me a difficult time because I'm a woman. Uh, What I find very challenging is the academic system, like the way the system works. Um, That's not like a person who comes to you and says, you don't get a promotion because you're a woman. Um, It's more like um, if you want to rise in the academic system, you have to be very flexible. You have to be willing to move to different locations. Um, And that kind of is a problem if you have a partner who's older than you are. And that happens for a lot of women and for me too. Not for everyone, but uh, my my husband is nine years older than I am. So um, his career started earlier than mine. So he got the really cool job um, in 2010. He got his professor position at University of Greifswald. I was basically ready to move on to a professor position so long ago. In like 2019, I was offered a professor position at University of Wacheningen, And I didn't move there because I have a child. I have a husband there in Greifswald. Um, not so easy to take them along. Um, so this creates serious problems, um, and I think it happens more often to women than to men because as women, we have this weird preference for the older men <laughs> somehow. Um, but I would not say um, that I was discriminated for my gender. Uh, that, that did not happen, but basically, um, particularly having a kid and being tied to a geographic location makes it challenging.
1: Hmm so it's like more of a biological disadvantage then
0: <laughs> i'm not sure whether this is a biological thing wh- how you choose your partner or whether it's also something i don't know passed on through our society i'm really mm. not sure about that um and and it's not like there are no solutions um there are many couples in academia and some of them have like their little deal like okay i get my professor position now if you later get the chance i'll I'll pack and drop my things and we move to yours. Um, you can have these agreements. Uh, and maybe I should have made such an arrangement a long, long time ago. I didn't. <laughs> Actually, I I thought for for a while that I would be very happy to be on the postdoc level forever. Like I really mm-hmm. thought that when I moved along um, to Greifswald, it took me uh, quite some time to realize that I really appreciate the freedom of running my own little team and conducting my research more independently
1: yeah that's interesting because like uh, what i'm noticing now is like there's an exodus out of academia to uh fields like uh, in the industry or other fields um or is that your Perception. You too. mean in
0: in Germany or for women or in in general?
1: In general, in general. Okay. <laughs> no, no. In general, <laughs> like people are leaving academia because uh, and and postdoc positions are like not unbefristed and like they are not um, yeah. they're limited. There's problem with funding. I don't know. What do you see? Yes. Like, the pros and um, cons of staying in academia. <laughs>
0: So first things first, I'm very lucky. I I got a permanent contract very early on uh, in 2013. Uh, Those physicians are super rare. So I'm I'm blessed to have it. I would have left academia for certain without the permanent contract. I would never have um, continued this. Um, The problem is that science has to be competitive um, in order to To move forward. So science in Germany is mostly, I'm not talking about industrial science and research, but about the publicly funded science and research is funded by the public. Like a taxpayer is funding uh, the universities and also the research institutions mostly. Um, And if we want to invest tax money, we want to invest it smartly. Like we want Mm -hmm. to get the biggest outcome of this. And also we don't want to put in indefinite amounts of money because we don't have indefinite amounts of funding. Um, And that means you're trying to select the best, the best in conducting science, the best in teaching, because you want to like teach the next generation to keep the system running. Um, and this has led to a couple of arrangements in the German academic system that are like super challenging now for young scientists. Um, one thing that happened was that a lot of permanent positions were eventually made temporary. Um I'm, I'm not sure about the exact time point, but I think that was changed, like in the 80s, 90s, um, in order to to make it possible that our system remains competitive. Yeah, that was the whole idea. Um, but also, like the laws for for work contracts, um, basically, usually you cannot just hire someone for a short period of time and then say, I don't need you anymore after three years. Like that would be typical PhD time span. So we made our own law, our own exceptions <laughs> in order to be able to hire uh, scientific staff on temporary contracts. It's called the Wissenschaftszeitvertragsgesetz. Um, which basically uh, gives scientists a limited number of years, uh, typically uh, six years before PhD, six years after PhD, when they can be on time-limited contracts for their own qualification. First qualification level is obtain PhD, second qualification level is usually obtain habilitation or equivalent. Huh? Um So we have this law and uh, this law creates a lot of problems for Mm. a lot of people. And I understand everyone who doesn't want to do it. Oh,
1: (laughs) habilitation.
0: Is it like assistant
1: assistant professor kind of?
0: No. Um, so that's pretty old school concept. Um, a long, long time ago, a PhD system was already established, we call it a doctor, not PhD in Germany. Um, it was assumed that in order to be able to teach other students, you should have written a second thesis and you should have proven that uh, you're capable of teaching. Um, so you can do basically a second PhD a second doctoral degree. Um, Usually you're supposed to do that with a lot less guidance than the first PhD. Um, And actually, I believe that's why I said it's very old fashioned that habilitation is a dying concept Mm. Uh, because in the US, for example, you don't have this. Um, They have assistant professors who become assistant professors at a quite young age after the PhD. Um, And then you can rise in ranks to associate and so on. In Germany, we actually tried to reform the system as well. We created the junior professors, which are like assistant professor positions. And um, today, when you apply for a full professor position, um, you don't have to have the habilitation. If you, Mm -hmm. for example, did a junior professor uh, job before with positive evaluations, that's pretty much the same as a habilitation. And even if you didn't do that at all, Like most of the bioinformatics professors, they have never done the habilitation. Um, I I did it, but I I only did it because I don't have a professor position and I want to be able to supervise my own PhD student.
1: I see, I see. And uh, do you have to apply for grants or something in this habitation? Um,
0: I think it doesn't hurt, but it's probably field-specific. So Mm. in the natural sciences, um, we are used to applying for grants. I'm not sure whether you have to show that you were successful in getting grants, for example, in law. I really don't know.
1: I see, I see. Okay, okay. So I have like a question in general about science. Um, So as a scientist, you're used to deal with uncertainty. Like trying to find things that no one found before, usually. <laughs> um, so, how do you deal with this feeling of uncertainty that comes with trying to figure things out?
0: I never saw that as a problem. Actually, <laughs> okay. it's it's. I don't know whether that's a matter of personality. I'm I'm not sure, but. Um, I never had this urge to believe in something. I I, I was uh, baptized as a child. Like my parents didn't um, ask me. They just baptized me. <laughs> and I also went through this uh, kind of church school as a teenager. I never identified with that. Like um, that was like believing in things just for believing in them. is never something that worked for me. Um, and, and then if you don't want to believe in something, you just have to. Establish for yourself that nothing is for certain yes um but this like in science nothing is for certain in terms of how you want to arrange your life i actually value very much to have permanent work contract um as i said before i would have left the field if it wouldn't have been for a permanent work contract i would not have had the patience to hang in there for I don't know, until the 12 years were up and always say, oh, I hope in the next six months I get another extension of six months.
1: Yeah, that's true, that's true. And um, so the unknown never scared you?
0: Mm, Well, my husband says I'm generally easily scared. (laughs) (laughs) So I wouldn't say that. (laughs) For example, um, we went snorkeling in Thailand in, in the beautiful blue ocean. Uh, and we didn't go snorkeling at a coral reef, but we took some canoes and were are between islands. And you can't see the ground when you're snorkeling there. It's in the deep water. This scares me. This freaks me out. Like, <laughs> I was like, I don't want to be in the water. I want to be in my canoe. Let, let me back up. <laughs> so I, I am scared by the unknown, uh, if it's visual for sure. <laughs> but I'm not worried about whether a finding I make today may be overthrown by tomorrow, uh, that will probably happen.
1: Yeah, that's part of the scientific process. So you had no problem dealing with failure then of an experiment?
0: Oh, I have a lot of problems with failure. That's a different story. <laughs> okay. But there are two reasons for failures. One reason for failure is because your hypothesis is wrong. Um this is something you have to expect, in my opinion. It can happen a lot. Um, the other reason for failure is that you mess up as a human being because, I don't know, you're clumsy and pipetting things in the lab or you're a bad programmer, which would more apply to me. Um, and then this feels really, really bad if you fail, if you fail because of your own shortcomings. Um And, well, that hit me pretty badly, actually. So I came from molecular biology into bioinformatics. And during my PhD, I was, let's say very well protected by my surroundings. Like I was a really bad programmer. (laughs) Um, I was able to do what I wanted to do, but it was not pretty at all and not reusable code either. Uh, But people around me compensated for that. I was so lucky. And then I moved on to my first postdoc phase, uh, which was with Tim Beisbart in Göttingen, but that was so brief that I moved on to University of Greifswald with my first own grant. And then I realized that I really have to learn so much because I can't compete. Um, and then this was really exhausting and really tiring for me to catch up <laughs> and very frustrating as well. So my my way to cope with it was basically to improve my skills, like always try to improve my skills and, it's maybe not a healthy way to live. Um, I'm I'm pretty ambitious if I want to get something done and uh, I will sit at my computer long, long hours. I have a little daughter now. She's six years old. I'm the one who doesn't come home on time. My husband always does. I'm the one who continues to sit in the office to finish something because mm. I was too slow in the morning.
1: <laughs> I see, I see. Okay, um, so you deal with it by pushing forward yeah i see and uh, so what keeps you motivated
0: (laughs) yeah it's a it's a good question sometimes i wonder whether my motivation is hidden in the garage no (laughs) i'm kidding (laughs) (laughs) um i am motivated by success like like um When you're a kid, you draw something, you go to your parents or your teacher, like, look, I I was drawing this house for you. And they're like, oh, this is so pretty. And as a child, you feel so rewarded. They have to keep your drawing and put it on their wall. Um, It's a little bit different. But in the field where I work, it works similarly. If I program something, a lot of people are going to run it usually. And they give feedback. Um, I mean, in in science, um, we have citations, like how many people basically quote using your method in their paper. Um, This is almost like the, oh, you draw this in such a pretty way, rewarding bonus thing. (laughs) You also get a lot of not so nice feedback when things don't work out. Um, But uh, basically, my motivation comes from knowing that I can expect kind of a reward in some way.
1: That's uh, pretty much the way it is, right? <laughs> <laughs> In our brains, like, yes. we work something because we expect a reward to it. Very good. Exactly. Okay, you brought the term success, and um I tend to ask, like, what does success mean to you?
0: Um. Well. Success is for me that I create something in science that someone else can use and will use and will be at least a little bit happy with. Um, Or it can also be um, that I teach students and afterwards they actually know what I try to teach them. They don't always do, but most of them try. (laughs) Um, And then they say, oh, now I understood how I don't know the correlation analysis works, and that is also success. Um, It can also be that I teach my daughter something and she's like, oh, okay, that's why, I don't know, the plant is green. (laughs) We had that discussion. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's the small things, basically.
1: Yeah, it is always the small things. Um, I I ask this question every time I meet someone lately in this podcast and uh, it's um, like maybe by the 100 podcasts, I will sum it up in a in a little book called like what success means for you oh know. and
0: then you can have a psychologist profile us and identify oh, <laughs> dr hoff has the narcissistic tendency no, I, <laughs> I, I probably do uh, but i know that if you ask colleagues of mine the answer will be very different <laughs> yeah
1: okay so um yeah we i mean i have just like one last question left and and it is since you're working with genes localizing them I think uh, maybe you maybe could tell us how long do you think humans still have on earth
0: <laughs> i have literally no idea when we are going to blow ourselves up um do, do you know this youtube video the end of the world um if you don't know it put that line into youtube maybe you want to put the soundtrack into your podcast Um, it's basically about how we're going going to end life with nukes
1: (laughs) is it like a little cartoon or yeah uh, yeah yeah yeah. i think i I saw it
0: (laughs) Um, so uh the thing is like i i have no idea when we're going to destroy our planet um there are a lot of I call them the young people. I feel so old right now with my gray hair who are like <laughs> trying to uh, make things better, who are like really fighting for fighting global warming and all that stuff. And at the same time, we have crazy politicians uh, who have like a power button to, <laughs> to launch a really bad, bad rocket. Um, so I, I have no idea. I, I hope we will have another thousands of years on this planet. I seriously hope that. Um
1: but, Do you think we need to be extra like multi-planetary uh, civilization? Or should we take care of our
0: the home that we care. know? We should be sustainable with our resources. We should figure that out. But it looks like we will fail. Like We're on a good way to melt the Arctic poles and to have a big flooding and, and bad wars.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's like the data, I guess, uh, seems to um, us <laughs> this way, but we have to believe like... Uh, but made us make it till here, I hope will keep us a little bit longer as a civilization. I hope
0: um, We nice. have survived a lot already. Like I think if, so, right? if you look at how, uh, for example, Europe looked like uh, in the Ice Age, in the Last Ice Age, <laughs> and, and humans prevailed. So um, my my personal uh, future hypothesis is that we will have very wet feet in Greifswald because we are not mm. very high here. <laughs> so maybe people will stop living here eventually. <laughs> but we also have move high to the cent-
1: Move back to Göttingen, the center of is, is it the center <laughs> of Deutschland?
0: <laughs> it's pretty central, and I really miss Gutting and I do see like um,
1: we're gonna wait for that moment and we're all like collects back in the center yeah. of Germany.
0: It's like this this uh, PhD program there and also the neuroscience program that's so closely related has something really unique in making people connect like um besides the science. Like you have all these scientific PhD students who do their amazing projects, but at the same time, we always had all these parties and these meetings. And um, I'm in touch um, closely with a couple of people from my year and from other years all the time. Like I really value that friendship. Yeah,
1: it it was very international. It was definitely like, I I feel like I was lucky to be part of that program. I remember like uh, telling, you know, know I'm like... um, probably horner like um, and uh first day i remember i think i i got lucky to get in here and he said yeah, yeah i think he did <laughs> like, i so.
0: felt so lucky like i got admitted on the waiting list me um, too yeah and yeah. i had I had really been hoping for this and I had dropped other offers for this. Like Heidelberg admitted me to the master's program in biotechnology, not in, in uh, mobile. Mm. Um, and I had not taken that offer and it was like late September and everyone was asking, Katarina, what are you going to do? I was like, I really want to go to Göttingen. I didn't get in <laughs> yet. See,
1: yeah, yeah. So you you were into the like you you knew the people who were in the program and you were interested to work with a specific that that's great that's great
0: and it worked out in the end pretty last like yeah last minute i missed orientation basically (laughs) Mm. So I I felt so lucky that it worked out. I honestly have no idea what I would have done because I had pretty much dropped all the other opportunities already.
1: (laughs) I mean, Göttingen is beautiful. I I live right now in Heidelberg, and uh, for student life, it had like specific atmosphere. Um, Well, it's beautiful. It's um, down-to-earth, kind of real and uh, it's a bit different from heidelberg like heidelberg is pushy kind of like i don't know that's like at least my impression oh um, yeah. That's
0: yeah my it's... impression too from the outside <laughs> it's actually why i didn't want to go to the biotech program there <laughs> now so... i can say that <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah so um no getting is beautiful um it's a little bit colder than heidelberg but
0: yeah, it is. I don't know. Now I'm in Greifswald. So Greifswald also has um, a very nice student life atmosphere, mm. I must say. Um, basically, the city is almost like dominated by students during the semesters. It gets pretty quiet during the breaks when people like go home to be with their families or For travel sure. or something. Um, but what I appreciated a lot about Göttingen was that they always seem to have enough funding for the important things. Mm. Um, And that makes it very different. Like now in Greifswald, all my colleagues and administration, they are working super hard and they are super kind and I appreciate all of them. Uh, But it always feels like we're behind in terms of resources, financial resources, Mm. just because we're in a different region.
1: That's true. That's true. Like uh, Matthew's effect. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) that <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean, getting in and, uh, Geisfeld, um very interesting stuff. Um, I lived in different like university cities are the for me are the best in in Germany. I lived in other cities, bigger ones like Bremen and Berlin. Um, but I decided to go back uh, to Heidelberg because it's it has more sun, like on average. Than getting in.
0: we have uh, even more sun than heidelberg really <laughs> yeah oh
1: man that's very good and you have like a beach and uh, like it's a coast, like, yeah, coast yeah
0: actually the first thing i did when we started uh working surfing. here i yes was surfing like awesome. i enrolled myself in, in a windsurfing class i even became a windsurfing instructor um <laughs> <Man. Respect. laughs> uh, like without a license though but uh, the Hochschul Sport university sports didn't mind <laughs> uh, yeah. but i had to stopped doing that when i got my kid uh because mm. um it doesn't work with the additional hours
1: <laughs> right well maybe now you could uh once she's a little bit older you could teach her and then yeah. she becomes a surfer too so, <laughs> i mean big cities are um in germany like um they have a different atmosphere, uh, than, uh, universities university are really special. You have everything that you need as a student and it's everything, even walking distance and, um, people understand that even if you're international, that, um, they have a little bit more understanding to you than, um, I felt Göttingen like, I, I had, I had my connections like with, uh, Germans in Göttingen like more than other, because, I play music and I was lucky to kind of find drum musicians to play with. And, uh, um, so they even have an understanding and they were like, yeah, this, this guy does not know anything about here. So let's, <laughs> let's be nice to him. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that was, that was nice. That was nice. Um, I guess. So w- what's next, what's next uh, for the research that you are doing and, uh,
0: Oh, yeah. What's next for me? Um, So I did my PhD on predicting genes in bacterial archaeal chunks and metagenomes. Um, And that is a difficult problem. Because I said before that all the cells work differently have their own signal machinery. And you cannot train the gene finders on very short chunks uh, Mm. of genomic material. Um, And There are some novel sequencing technologies, uh, for example, a company called Pacific Biosciences, who develop protocols um, to make very long reads. Um, There's something called the PacBio HiFi reads. They're very long reads with a very high accuracy. Uh, So they're... Um, not having many mistakes in the sequence. And uh, this makes it feasible to actually also predict genes in the eukaryotic reads. Um, so uh, a pro- project I'm working on with my new PhD student Natalia Nenasheva is to make methods for predicting genes in eukaryotic metagenomic uh, sequences. Um, that's one thing that's next. Um, there are many many more actually <laughs> i have a lot of loose ends that i want to catch up on but i'm like my main thing continues to be um making fully automated methods that achieve a high accuracy for genome annotation that's uh, still my thing
1: great great okay i i wish you great luck and thank this you endeavor. so much Dr. Katharina Hoff thank you so much for taking the time to meet to meet with me it was i learned a lot uh, i think we tried to cover um so many things um from biotechnology to bioinformatics to your experience and to genes to DNA. i it's too much to understand <laughs> too much to cover and, and i'm very thankful for uh, your patience and trying to Uh, communicate that to the audience.
0: Thank you very much. It was an honor to talk to you.